Good morning, everyone. Well, as we begin this morning, a couple of things. Diana is here this morning. Just wanted to let you know, her husband went to be with the Lord Wednesday. What day? Two weeks ago. I thought it was close. Okay, two weeks ago. So let's remember her in prayer. And then we have, it was announced last week, but we have an engagement to make sure we all knew about it. Will the newest engaged couple please stand? Will the newest engaged, oh, there it is, there it is. John and Ellie. John and Ellie. Ellie is a medical person at Tulane, right? She's going through her studies at Tulane, and John is trying to figure out how to complete his Ph.D. in physics. And so, yeah, it's exactly, ooh, you know. So I say, any of those of you who took physics in high school, I say ohms to you. Remember ohms? And he's the only one who understands that. So... So good to see you guys this morning, you too this morning. Well, welcome back to our study in Matthew. We're in Lesson 14. And this morning we're going to begin to get into the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't say we will be doing the Sermon on the Mount. I said we're going to begin to get into the Sermon on the Mount. So for those of you who are thinking that this is going to be a fast fly-through, better go to another class. Uh, So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here. Father, we just praise you and thank you. Father, again, what a gift. What a gift. The eternal son takes on humanity by taking to himself a human body and soul in order to Fulfill your purpose of having a people for your praise, a people in your image, in order to undo what Adam did, in order to bring us to the experiencing of what this word Emmanuel means, God with us. To bring us, Father, into the very closest, most intimate fellowship, relationship that can ever happen between the divine and the human. Father, today we have a down payment of that by your spirit. Father, we have an inkling, a touch, a twinkling in the sky of what that means. Father, we await that day when Revelation 22, 4 says, and they shall see his face. Father, your face, your presence, from which Adam and Eve were expelled And then through the ages, through the ages, through the ages, you moved, you worked, you promised, you prophesied that a man would come and bring us back into your face-to-face presence 
And Father, we would not just come in and out, but we would come into your presence and by the enduring life of this raised man who sits at the right hand, Father, we would remain in your presence face to face forever. Father, we thank you for this. Father, thank you for giving us these words of yours, this word incarnate, translated and communicated to us in this Bible. So, Father, as we give ourselves to you by the Spirit and as your Holy Spirit ministers to us and enlarges and reveals to us and anoints us and uses us, Father, we are coming more and more into an experience that will await the fullness on that day. So, Father, as we study your word, Father, we're just not here just to learn things. But as we learn and gain information, Father, you are giving us the personal knowledge of your love, of your goodness, of your kindness, of your grace. So, Father, translate all that is said in your word, all that we say, all that is said in in sermons and other teachings, Father, and in fellowshipping, translate it all by your spirit into a living, personal fellowship with you. Father, we thank you for this, and we know that you would do it because this is the reason Jesus came. Father, thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we saw that last week, the Son of God was anointed And immediately upon being anointed, he goes into the wilderness to do what 1 John 3.8 says. Remember, we quoted 1 John 3.8, the second part of that verse. Now, this is is one of the verses that you should know by heart. There are certain verses we all should know by heart. So 1 John 3.8b, if you would. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. And so Christ, the Son of God, has taken to himself a human body and soul. So that in doing so, he may face the same rigors of life. And enter the same realm of temptation that Adam did. And that in overcoming those temptations then Jesus would be qualified, the only qualified man, to be able to take unto himself all of our sin and take it to the cross. And in doing so, he submitted himself to being enwrapped by death as to his humanity. And then being enwrapped by death, Jesus died. And in doing so, he took death into the grave. And in his resurrection, death's hold over all of God's people 
is forever broken because there is a man who has died and who has been raised again, thus breaking forever the claim and the burden and the penalty of death, which our sin caused us to have to pay. And in doing this, he broke Satan's authority forever. And that's what we see part, and that's what we see, if you would, demonstrated in the wilderness. And now that man of victory, of power, as a man, comes forth. And what we're going to see demonstrated in the rest of the gospel of Matthew all the way to the very last word in chapter 28. What we're going to see is nothing more nor nothing less than the dramatic revelation and outworking of what that victory will mean to us. Because you see, once Jesus leaves the wilderness, other than God's purpose of showing us what the Christian life looks like in the person of Jesus himself, other than that purpose of showing us what our life in Christ is to look like and how it is to function individually, personally, and relationally within the church and to the world. Other than that purpose, Jesus then, after the wilderness, could have gone right to the cross, I believe, and have paid the full, sufficient price for all the sin of all his people for all time. And so what was required was the incarnation. What was required was the baptism. What was required then was defeating Satan in the wilderness to show that God has a man on earth who is his second Adam. And then having done that, having obeyed in every detail, then the only requirement after that is the cross, is the cross. And so you see, we have an interlude here, if you would. At the end of verse 11, chapter 4, Jesus finishes, the the temptations of Jesus, uh, over Jesus is finished. We have an interlude. Now, everything now that Jesus does, every step he takes, is a step closer and closer to the finality that at the cross, Jesus will demonstrate what his victory over Satan in the wilderness accomplished. He will demonstrate that at the cross. But until then, he will show us what this life as an image bearer, Roman, uh, Genesis 126, looks like. What it looks like for me personally, what it looks like for you personally, what it looks like for us corporately, what it looks like within the structure or the content of the church or the kingdom of God and what it looks like out to the outside world. So with that little bit of introduction, let me begin my lesson today. What we're going to do is Matthew, we will see that Matthew structures the rest of the gospel around five sermons. And between each of these lengthy sermons 
all the activities of the ministry and the confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees and his healing ministry and, and what he does, where he goes, all of those kinds of things are interspersed, if you would, between five major sermons. And so the sermons or the blocks of instruction fall out this way. There are five of them, and I think you have them in the notes, don't you? Chapters 5, 6, and 7 is the first block. Then we get to chapter 10, which is the next block of sermon. Then chapter 13, then chapter 18, and then chapters 23 to 25. Those are the five main, if you would, sets of sermons around which Matthew structures and brings together this collage, this spiritual collage. Everybody know what a collage is? This spiritual collage of the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at the verses 12 to 25. Isn't it 12 to 25? Doesn't chapter 4 end with verse 25? Okay. Verses 12 to 25, before Matthew gets into the first block of sermons, what he's going to do for us, he's going to just give us a summary statement, if you would, of what this ministry of Jesus will look like and what it will contain and what he will do. And then we get into beginning the Sermon on the Mount itself in chapter 5, verse 1. And so let's look at that. Matthew introduces the Sermon on the Mount with a summary of Jesus' ministry by giving us seven examples of Jesus' authority. Now remember, Jesus was anointed with authority in Matthew three sixteen and 17, Matthew 16 specifically, with authority to be God's royal Messiah, God's royal son, who would subdue and rule and fill the earth with the presence and the image of God. And that royal authority, again, causes him first to go into the wilderness to be qualified in his obedience to walk forward in this. Adam was given royal authority upon the earth to do the ministry mandated through the three mandates. But he lost that ability because he was disqualified because of his disobedience. And so Jesus is given the same authority, if you would, as a man, but is qualified through his obedience. And to us is given that qualification when we are saved or actually before the foundation of the world. But when we become, come into Christ, then we are qualified. We have been then declared to be worthy, not within ourselves as to our own merit, but because of the merit of the Son of God and the qualification and the anointing of the Son of God and his absolute obedience in the fullest sense that is now credited to us. Therefore, we are called the righteousness of God in Christ. And so, coming in this block of verses, 12 to 25, Matthew introduces the Sermon on the Mount. It's a summary, giving us seven examples of Jesus' authority as a second Adam, who has come to do what? To subdue and rule and eventually fill the earth with the image of God. In other words, to fulfill what God created Adam to do. Genesis 1, to 28, and Genesis two fifteen to 17. So verses 12 to 16, let me read them together here. Now Jesus moved, uh, first of all, this, the, the, what is Jesus' authority? Look at these seven statements. These are seven statements of Jesus' authority. I'll get it straight one day. First of all, in this first block of verses, 12 to 16, Jesus makes the personal decision where his home base, if you would, of, is going to be um, occurring. He's going to be going to Capernaum in, all, in, in fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1 through 6. 
Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, to the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. On them, light has dawned. So what did you see in that particular verse? You saw that Jesus makes the decision, this is where we're going, and this is going to be my base of operation. So Capernaum becomes his base of operation. It's his authority to make that decision. But what else do you see? Not only is a fulfillment of what Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 says, but what is there in that prophecy that to the Jews would have been an obnoxious thing, and especially to the Pharisees. What was so obnoxious to them? What is Matthew emphasizing here? That Jesus is the Messiah, not only to the Jews, but also to the nations or to the Gentiles. Now, why does Matthew insist on this? Because you remember, the first promise that God gave to Adam is that he and his progeny would do what? Fill the earth. And so all nations would be included in this group of people called the church of the kingdom of God. And then you remember in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 17, in reiteration, and then, you know, in Exodus, we see over and over again the promise that God is going to send his uh, send his, sorry, God is going to save not only his own people, but he's going to extend that salvation into the Gentile world. And so when it says Galilee of the Gentile, that's a very significant statement because it says Jesus is here to fulfill not only the prophecy of being the Jewish Messiah, but he's also fulfilling the promise that he will be the savior of the world. Verse 17, Jesus' authority to command his people to repent. Isn't it interesting? Only God has the authority to tell us to repent. And so it says, from that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the, the word of repentance is always the word of the gospel. Remember in Acts 13, 17, 30, the times of ignorance, God, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, are you surprised about that? All people everywhere. You see, when we as those who believe in Reformed theology, or what I would rather say, biblical truth, we believe that God has a people that he saves out of the world of people. But you see, the command of God is to all people to repent. And there's the conundrum. God commands everyone on earth to do what? Repent of their sin, of their rebellion, of their independence of God, and turn their hearts toward the Lord and seek him and receive Christ. God commands that. But the conundrum is God then moves upon the hearts of those whom he will save, those whom he has known before the foundation of the world. Where is that? Before the foundation of the world. Where, what did I just quote? Ephesians 1, 4. 
before the foundation of the world, and those are the ones in whom he makes that word of repentance a reality. People don't repent because they do not want to repent. Therefore, God must move his people to repentance. There's a very interesting verse, a set of verses in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. And Paul is saying that God may grant them repentance. First of all, God must grant them who all their lives were subject to do the will of Satan. And that one verse should tell us, apart from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to move upon our hearts, to change our stony hearts from stone to flesh, from a dead heart, a hard heart, to a living, vibrant heart that God puts within us. Other than that, no one repents. Everyone is held captive to do Satan's will. And those who are set free or those whom God sets free through the death and resurrection of his son, applying that victory and that freedom to those whom he has known before the foundation of the world. And so the Holy Spirit in us who are saved takes the key of the victory of Jesus Christ and inserts it into the lock that held us captive and opens the gate of our cell so that we can walk out in freedom. And so that is described, you remember, in another way in, 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 in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, just again, to make sure that we're collecting scriptures together. In verses 18 to 23, uh, 22, Jesus' authority to call his disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately. Do you have this written? Are these verses written down? Yes. Would you take your Bible or something and underline that word? What word did I just read? Immediately. Hmm? Would you underline that word immediately? Do you notice what happens here? It's not Jesus calling and we say, well, if I can make it tonight, I will. Well, Jesus, you didn't understand. I, I have other obligations. I'm busy. I'm tired. I mean, can you imagine the first Sunday night uh, um, gathering? Maybe that's our indication that biblically we should be meeting on Sunday nights. I don't know. And what does the risen Savior say to this lady in the garden? It says, Mary, go tell my disciples that I go ahead of them into Galilee, but we will get together tonight and have church. And so he appears to the disciples, and everybody is there except Thomas. For some reason, Thomas is busy or doing something. Aren't you glad Jesus had mercy on Thomas to invite him back in? Do we ever know what ministry and touch of the Holy Spirit we will miss when we don't attend church. We don't know what we'll be missing. 
and you see the idea generally is this. Well, it'll be okay because I have this and that and the other thing, and, and God will understand. I don't think God will understand in the way you're thinking he will. But it is such a put-down. It is such a put-down to the gathering desire of a heavenly father who has paid the greatest price for his people to be together with him. It is such a dishonoring when we put other things before that as excuses not to be where God asks us to be. Amen? It is such a put down to him. And so immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going out from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Hey, where are y'all going? We still have stuff to do. We can't do, you have obligations. Yes, but the obligation was to their heavenly father first and not to the natural obligations. You see, if we will follow God's instruction, we will always fulfill the obligations on the earth that he gives us to fulfill rather than the ones we think we need to fulfill. We will always fulfill the earthly obligations if we are about the heavenly obligation. That will always happen. So Jesus calls. Remember 1 Corinthians 1, nine. For God is faithful. What? who has called us into the work of ministry. Did I misquote that, uh, Bath? Did I misquote that you're shaking your head? For God is faithful, who has called us into doing things. What has he called us into? For God is faithful, who has called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So James, if someone says, what you calling? Murphy, if someone says, what you calling? Andy, if someone says, what you calling? Mary, what are you calling? Forgot your name. Tammy, what you calling? It happens, it happens. Mary, what you calling? Jerry, what are you calling? What is that calling, church? It's not to things, it's to the fellowship with God himself through Christ by the Spirit. As a result of that and as we function in that and as we fellowship and to the extent we are fellowshipping and fellowship with God becomes the absolute focus and foundation and passion of anything and everything of our lives, all of the ministry of the fellowship will be accomplished by the Spirit through us. So we are called first and primarily and really only into the fellowship of God. And as a result of that, God will then produce the ministry of the fellowship. Because all the ministry we do, isn't it really a ministry resulting from and manifesting our fellowship in Christ. Isn't that what ministry is all about? We dare not separate the ministry from the fellowship. We must make sure that fellowship 
produces function, and that function without fellowship is faulty. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 23a, Jesus' authority to teach God's word. And he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And you see, as we look at these seven statements of Jesus' authority, again, remember this. These activities are not disassociated from his fellowship with God because Jesus Christ, the man, is in absolute, intimate, continual fellowship with the Father by the Holy Spirit. As a result of that, this is what happens in his life. And so these should be, if you would, signposts in our lives to cause us to be able to be evaluated by the Lord. Are you walking in fellowship with me? And if you are, these things are happening, not are you doing these things? Never make this... Um, emphasis on what we do make the emphasis on who we are in Christ and who he is in us and our fellowship together amen Amen. then everything else will be done never make the things we do and the places we go and what we say the emphasis God saves us for fellowship fellowship And fellowship, genuine, Holy Spirit-imbued, anointed, led, gifted fellowship always produces the ministry of the Holy Spirit called the gospel. Let's not get it backward, church. It is so easy to get it backward and get it upside down. You see, then, how do you know you're getting it upside down? Then the ministry becomes a burden and a difficulty. But if it's a result of fellowship, it is empowering and invigorating. I didn't say there's nothing that we don't have physically. We get tired. I think you understand what we're talking about. So these are signposts. Am I in fellowship with God the way and to the extent that he desires. That he desires. Jesus' authority over demons. I'm sorry, uh, the diseases. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick. Those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains. And in B... Continuing that, his authority over demons, those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. I'm wondering sometimes, you know, we talk about we need and want the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and we want to see miracles. Miracles. How many of you want to see miracles? I do. But I wonder, I don't know, I just really wonder whether the lack of miracles among us may be a result of the lack of the greatest miracle. You see, because all of these miracles are but manifestations of the deepest and most profound miracle. And what is that? That we would be brought into the fellowship to God the Father himself by the Son through the Holy Spirit.
And I wonder if there is a lack of the demonstration of much of this work of the Spirit because there is a lack in our fellowshipping with God as demonstrated and applied in our fellowshipping among one another. I didn't say there was an equality. I said what? I wonder. And I do believe there is a very careful and clear link there. So let us, when we want more of the demonstration of the power, I want to see Pentecost all the time at Lakeview Christian Center. I wonder, though, if first the Lord wants to say, I'm ready to give it. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Cast your burden upon me for my what? My yoke is what? Easy. Easy. And find rest unto your souls. And I believe in that, in that and from that will flow the waters, living waters of the Holy Spirit into the church and out into the world in a much greater way. I'm wondering if I misplaced emphasis sometimes is clogging the pipes. The water's there. We just need to get the Holy Spirit as a Steve Roberts plumber and, and get that stuff out of there. The effect of Jesus' authority and great, what was the effect? Great crowds followed him in Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. Now you'll notice that I put in here Luke four eighteen is a summary statement. Luke, when you read that statement, Jesus gives you that statement in, in, in his hometown quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, 61, and it's the same of what we just read. The spirit of the sovereign Lord, the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and the release from darkness for the prisoners. This is the ministry that flows from this intimate fellowship with God. Oh, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to make sure we see today that the emphasis that we're going to see and the revelation that we are going to see from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 28 in Matthew, as in any of the Gospels, is the result of God and man being made one in fellowship, relationally connected through his love. Amen. That's... This is what we're going to be seeing. This is what God created Adam and Eve to be. This was their future. But Jesus came to make it our future. Let's look at the overview of the Sermon on the Mount for a few moments. I think we have about 45 minutes if my eyes are correct and trying to see the clock there. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes what the kingdom looks like. The Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, are a description, if you would, of the kingdom of God. Now, I've divided the, the sermon, and you can see that division. Now, verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He goes up to the mountain, and he opens his mouth, beginning to, to speak. When we look at that scene of this man going into the mountain and then the word of God and the command of God is going to come forth, we get a picture. Remember who else went into the mountain and as a result of that fellowship with God and into the mountain, the, the mountain being a picture of the 
presence of God coming up to God. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? Remember Psalm 24? Remember that? So it's an ascension. It's going up to God. And when Jesus does that, whom else, who else do we remember? Moses, remember. This scene recalls Moses ascending the mountain to receive the law of, of the old covenant. As God's new Moses, Jesus will now explain the meaning of the Ten Commandments. He is going to take, if you would, the Ten Commandments that were given on the mountain. And he's going to, if you would, flesh them out to fill in the blanks because the Ten Commandments are but a, an outline, an outline of the very person and purpose of God in his people and for his people. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. It is a very outline of the very person. I am the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. And the purpose of God for his people. And so it's just ten statements. It's like a boundary, you know. But Jesus comes now, and he doesn't change the law at all, but he fulfills the law. He is the fulfillment. Where do we see that? Colossians 2, 17. In him is the substance of the fulfillment. In this one man, all of what God is, who God is, and all of what God wants to be in his people and for his people, with his people, and through his people, is in Christ. And Jesus fulfills all of it. And so what you really have here, I believe, in this Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus is expounding himself to us. You see, I'm concerned that we not look at this word or any word ever apart, ever apart from the person and work of Christ. And it's so easy to do. It's easy to disassociate what we are reading from the very person and heart of God, isn't it? But when we look at this word, as exampled, I think, clearly in this sermon, we are seeing who Christ is, who he is relationally, who he is in function who he is within the church or the kingdom and who he is to the world. And that's what we're seeing in these verses. Colossians 2.17 says he is the fulfillment, the substance. And so as we read this, let's not read it. Disassociate it from this is what it is to be in fellowship with God. This is the kind of kingdom. This is the life. This is this man who walks upon the earth and who is the living reality and the demonstration of this sermon. For instance, if you were to turn, and I think I have it in the notes, verses 17 to 20 in chapter 5. Do you have that in your notes? And listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, I want to just stop there. I don't want to read the rest of it. You can read that. The law or the prophets. Then, at the end of the sermon, except for a few concluding remarks, at the end of the sermon in chapter 7, verse 12, he says, the law or the prophets. 
Do you see that? He uses the same terminology. He brackets the sermon in the beginning with the law and the prophets after he gives the blessings. The blessings, and we'll talk about what that is. And then moving it forward, he ends the sermon with the law and the prophets. Now, what is so significant about that? Luke 24. And appearing to two disciples who had left Jerusalem, remember, after the death of Jesus. And he appears to them and says, hey, what's happening? And they said, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know what's going on? The things that are going on, he says, what things? He didn't say, oh, I don't know. He says, what things? Harold, he's, he wants to draw it out of them. What, what are you talking about? He knows what he's talking about. You ever do that to your children? What things? You know what things. And he draws it out of them. And he said, we had hoped. We had hoped that this man was the Messiah. But he's dead. He's dead. Then in verse 27, what does Jesus say? The law and the prophets all speak about me. Do you see that? And then in verse 44, I think it is, the law and the prophets and Psalms. I think it's verse 44. If it isn't, someone help me on that one. What he's saying here is the law and the prophets summarize Christ. It's a summary of Christ. And so when Matthew is saying the law and the prophets in the beginning of the sermon, quoting from Jesus, and at the end of the sermon, what is he saying? What I'm giving you is a revelation of myself, of me. That's why he brackets it that way. It's just not something to say. He says it purposefully, which we see again, as I said, in Luke 24. So since Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, this sermon, chapters six, 5, 6, and 7, specifically, in a general sense moving forward, but specifically, this sermon is about the life and the person and the ministry, the effect of Jesus in and through his people. Next week, we'll start with the blessings. And I want you to, if you would, when you read these blessings, remember in Matthew chapter 3 to 12, the nine blessings, I want you to remember them and read them within the context of Numbers 6, 24, 5, 26, and how do you like that? I'm, I'm forgetting all my verses. The Aaronic Prayer, number 6, is a verses 24 to 26, I think. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But where do we see blessing originally? In chapter 1 of Genesis, and God blessed them. Bless him with what, Chris? Himself. So as you read these blessings, read it within the context. What is essentially God speaking about when he talks about blessings? We would think essentially it's about stuff. And stuff is in it. But that's not the essence of it. See you next week.